0: Hey guys, I'm Tim. For those of you who don't know me, I'll be reading our passage for this morning, which, as said, is going to be Philippians 2, starting in verse 12 and going through verse 30. So, give you a second to flip there um, just kind of as a reminder again this, is, this isn't something we're just doing as some kind of transition for the sake of it but we we really do believe like there's there's a God that actually tells us to tremble at his word and so as we're reading this together I really just want to encourage us to really really believe that and and tremble as we're hanging on every word of this um, so Philippians 2 uh, 12 therefore my dear friends just as you have always obeyed So now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life." Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Now I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be encouraged by the news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ but you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with his father therefore i hope to send him to you soon and uh, hope to send him to you soon as i see how things go with me and i'm confident in the lord that i myself will also come soon but i considered it necessary to send to you pathroditus, my brother co-worker and fellow soldier as well as your messenger and minister to my need Since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I'm very eager to send him, uh, so that you may rejoice again when you see him, and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and hold people like him in honor, for he came close to death for the work of Christ. Risking his life to make up for what was lacking in your ministry to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it.
1: Morning. My name is Drew Moss. Uh, I am one of the Drews here at Sunnybrook. Uh, I work with our college ministry, uh, The Table, and, and so that's what I get to do most of my time. I just spend a weekend. Uh, Away with them, actually, on our winter retreat. We were in Adair-ish, Oklahoma, at uh, New New Covenant Ranch, New Life Ranch, New Life Ranch. Uh, Got back late. I'm tired. So if things I start saying are just nonsensical, just kind of go with it. Amen every now and then, and I'll think I'm still doing good. So Uh, uh, the writer Philip Yancey uh, tells this story about this uh, this conference on comparative religions that took place in England around the 1950s, in which they brought in all these experts from around the world to come together and to discuss the different world religions, how they compared and how they contrasted, uh, where they diverged and where they overlapped, and, and to talk through all of these different things over a series of days. And on one morning, the topic turns to Christianity and its unique contributions to the world. What, what was unique about Christianity? What sets Christianity apart from other religions? They actually had kind of a hard time figuring this out for a while. Uh, someone threw out the incarnation, that Jesus came, the Son of God in human form, and, and, and while it was kind of, it was uh, admitted that the way Christianity describes the incarnation and what that is is different and unique, uh, the idea of incarnation in itself is not. There are stories even going back to like the, the ancient Greek gods of them appearing in human form. Uh, Someone else threw out the idea of resurrection, and again, while Christianity's version of resurrection is something different and unique, there are a number of religions that talk about life after death, and so they went round and round on this for a while, and finally, uh, late into the conversation, into the room walks uh, C.S. Lewis, who was a well-known, even at that time, Christian apologist and writer. And so, of course, when he walks into the room, all eyes turn towards him. He asked them what they were discussing, and and they mentioned it. And so, somebody put the question to him Lewis, what is it? You tell us, what do you think is the difference between Christianity and everything else? What makes Christianity unique? And Lewis, without batting an eye, said, That's easy grace. Grace, the idea that God would seek, uh, would give us his love free of charge, that he would come and offer that uh, without, uh, without waiting for us to do anything else, all those things. That makes Christianity unique. And, and as they thought and discussed through it, they all came to agree. There's something about this concept uh, of God's free love coming and brought to us. Uh, is, is something that just runs counter to most human instincts. And, and, and I agree. I, 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 would, I would fall right in line with them. Two of the things that give me the great confidence I have in the Christian faith is, is that there are at least two ways in which it really does run counter to other religions that is really counterintuitive. One is the fact that it centers not on our pursuit of God, but on his pursuit of us, on his coming through Jesus Christ to come and find us. And the second one is that it is not focused around. Uh, our accomplishments or our performances in order to have Him, but it is focused on grace. That He gives us freely grace to, to reconcile us to Himself and bring us to Himself. That concept is fundamental to Christianity, foundational to all that we believe. It's at the core of our faith. Our most famous verses have to do all with this. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever performs a set list of tasks lives a really good and moral and upright life. No, whoever simply believes in him will have eternal life. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2.8-9, for you have been saved by grace, not by works. It is God's gift. This is not from yourself, so that no one may boast. You've been saved by grace. This is what it is to be Christian. This is at the core of all that we are, which is why... The opening verse of our text today can be kind of puzzling to a lot of people. A lot of really smart people have been puzzled by this passage. There have been a lot of pages in commentaries and in uh, scholarly resources written about this verse trying to sort out what exactly Paul means. Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We're going to, just so you know, we're going to try to touch on all of this text today. We're At least points of it, we're going to try to touch on all of it. But, but we're actually going to spend a, a lot of our time, about half of our time, just right here in this one verse because... It really is a big verse and there's a lot to unpack. And the rest of the text kind of flows from what Paul is saying here. He starts with this word, therefore, which you know, that means that we're supposed to go back and look. What he's about to tell us is built on what he's already said to them. And and we learned about this last week, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. There, Paul comes to this church that is plagued by conflict, and he calls them to put the interest of other people in front of their own. He calls them to unity through humility, as Justin said last week. And then he says this, that you ought to have Every one of you ought to have the same attitude as Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not count equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage, but he emptied himself and took on the nature of a servant. And then Paul goes into our text here, therefore, if that's what Jesus did, then I'm urging you to follow through, obey, just as you did when I was there with you, continue obey to this day, and he says this, and work out your own salvation. With fear and trembling, and that's the that's the weird part, that's the strange part. Work out your own salvation. Something about that doesn't sound quite right, does it? Actually, it gets weirder than that. Work out is, is the, the word that they've chosen or the way they've chosen to translate this word, but that's probably not the best translation. The word in Greek is katergazomai, and pretty much all the biblical scholars will say that's the most natural reading of this word is accomplish or produce, in fact, that's how this, this, this word, every other place in the New Testament is translated as either do or produce or accomplish. I won't go through all of them. Let me just give you one example. Romans 5, 3. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that our afflictions, katirgadzomai, our affliction produces endurance. And this is the word that Paul is using. Um, obey, just as you did in my presence, obey in my absence. Produce endurance your own salvation, with fear and trembling. And now it doesn't just sound weird. It sounds almost heretical, doesn't it? And I'd be tempted to maybe say that it was, except for the fact that it's in the Bible, right? And, and heresy, the definition of heresy is, is diverging from the Bible. And, and so this is what is said right here in the Scripture. It is said by Paul, the apostle of grace. This is God's truth. And, and you should know that this verse, Philippians 2.12, is not an outlier. It's not some random verse that we can try to kind of twist around and go, "Ah, well, we can make it fit with everything else. The reality is actually this idea comes up over and over again in the New Testament. There are numerous other texts that connect our obedience and our works to our salvation. Actually, every author in the New Testament says this. Every one of them, some of them in multiple places, starting with Jesus himself, who says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. There are those who will profess faith in me, and you should profess faith in Jesus as Lord, but Jesus says that there are those who profess faith and they will not be saved. It is only those who do the will of my Father in heaven in heaven. Writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, verse 14, strive, make efforts towards peace with all men and for the holiness without which, one, without which no one will see the Lord. That is, if your life is not marked by holiness, you better strive for it. If your life is not marked by holiness, he says, you will not see the Lord. And probably most famously, James, in chapter 2 of his letter, he asks this question. Suppose a man has faith but has no works. Can such a faith save him? And James' resounding answer is no. No, it cannot save him. He'll, he'll go on to explain in verses 20 through 24, senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham, our father, justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. So you see that a person, and this is a weird phrase to see, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then he'll go on one verse later to say this, and this is probably the most famous part. For just as a body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This truth is all over the New Testament. And it has puzzled many people at times because it seems to contradict the clear and plain teaching that we are justified by grace alone through faith alone. In fact, there are many who've, Just gone ahead and said that, have proposed just that very idea that Paul's teaching contradicts the teaching of James. That Paul's teaching really contradicts the teaching of Jesus. I don't think we have that option. One is because obviously we believe that all of this is the inspired, inerrant word of God, and therefore it all comes together. There are no contradictions in this. But even logically speaking, if we want to say that Paul contradicts James and Jesus, we have to say that Paul contradicts himself. We have to say that he contradicts himself in Philippians 2.12, other places like Romans 2 that talk about how God will reward people according to their works with eternal life. We have to be able to put all of these things together. So what I want to do is spend our time today trying to answer two key questions. First is this, what does it mean to work out our own salvation? And second, how do we work out Our own salvation. What does it mean and how do we do it? Let's start with the first one. What does it mean to work out our salvation? First, you need to know this, that this command does not nullify or contradict the idea that we are saved by faith. Trusting Jesus by faith and obeying Jesus by faith are not two different uh, opposing views that we have to try that, that are held in tension. Actually, no, they are two sides of the same coin. The Bible's consistent teaching is that, yes, we are justified by faith alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. That faith is always accompanied by displayed through, lived out in obedience to Jesus. That's what James means when he says you see that his work was active together with his faith. And what he means when he says that faith without works is dead, he's saying it's not actually faith. It's not real faith because those two things always go together. So You're driving down the road, and as you drive, you come across this burning building, and there's a man up in the third floor of that building. Smoke is just coming up out of this thing everywhere, there's flames everywhere, and it's obvious he's trapped. There's nowhere for him to be able to go. It's, the window is the only opening he has. And so the fire department arrives, and they pull up the truck there, and all the people get out, and, and they pull out that, that big, giant trampoline net thing, right? And they hold that under the, net, or under the window, only you're going to have to just, you're going to have to imagine with me that it's 1983, okay? Uh, because halfway through writing this illustration, I learned that they stopped using the trampoline net in 1984, okay? So just... <laughs> Go with me. All right, travel back with me. Is 1983. Michael Jackson's Thriller album is blasting through your speakers as you drive down the road in your car, and you notice this window with a guy uh, up there. The, the fire's burning. He's stuck. And the, the fire department pulls up. They pull out the big net, right? They pull out the 1983 net, and they set it out in front of him, and they shout out to the man, do you trust us? And the man says, yes, absolutely. I trust you. They say, then you're going to have to jump. And he yells back, not a chance. (laughs) But you believe us, right? You believe that we can catch you. You trust that we have the ability to catch you and save you. 100%. I have absolute full faith that you have the ability and that you will be able to catch me. I'm not jumping. Question for you, to quote James, can such a faith save him? The answer, of course, is no, that merely agreeing with the fact that they can save him is not the same as trusting them to save him, that one implies action. The kind of faith that is described in scripture is not mere mental assent to the fact. Yes, I I, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. I believe that he died on a cross. I I agree that he rose from the grave. That's that's one thing. But what what the Bible is calling to is an active trust in Jesus that that does not just uh, agree to what he says but actually entrusts my life to him, entrusts myself to him as my savior and as my Lord. Those things must go together. And to clarify, when James says, when Paul says, when Jesus talks about faith and works working together that we do things, it's really important to make sure we get this. They are not talking about a certain like, quota of works that you have to do. That you, you've got to make sure that you have faith and do the right thing 75% of the time. Or at least the majority, like 51%, you've got to be good. They're not talking about you've got to have faith and make sure you do these 30 things. And if you'll accomplish all those things, there's not a quota or standard that they're reaching for because the only real standard for our morality and our good works is perfection. If we're talking about getting to God, the only thing that gets us to God is perfection. And James himself will say one chapter later, none of us is. James 3.12, we all stumble in many ways. But what they're describing here is the fact, yeah, no one is going to do this perfectly, but this does not depend on us. What saves us is a faith in Jesus that is shown through trying to follow that Jesus and stumbling in many ways sometimes and then getting up and repenting and trying again and then stumbling in many ways sometimes. When I realize that I've stumbled, I repent and I get up and I try back again and over and over again and all through that process, I trust Jesus with every part of it. The next thing you need to know about working out our salvation is that salvation is probably bigger than most of us think. We often use this term, saved, as synonymous with converted. We talk about being saved and we we talk about something that happened in the past. We talk about our, our, our conversion. When were you saved? Well, I was saved when I was seven years old. When were you saved? Well, I was saved when I was in college. And that's biblical. That's true. The Bible does talk about us being saved in the past Tense, like in Titus 3, verses 4 through 5. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us past tense, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy. So, yes, we were saved in the past tense by Jesus. Not because we were good enough to be saved, not because we were worthy of being saved, not because of our righteousness, but because of God's mercy. But there are other times. When the Bible will use this phrase, this idea of salvation, and put it in the present tense, like in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. Present tense, happening now, in this moment, are being saved, and still there are other moments when the Bible will talk about salvation as something that is yet to come. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? I think that verse is really interesting too, because it goes back to the past, right? I was reconciled by Christ, like in the past, and and this is in the context of Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners. You didn't do anything to deserve that and he reconciled you, and yet he also says that salvation, full salvation, is future-oriented. This is what is sometimes described as the three tenses of salvation. It is past, it is present, it is future. And this is because salvation in the Bible consists of three inseparable parts. They cannot be broken apart real cleanly. They all kind of fit and twist together. You've probably heard them talk about if you've been at Sunnybrook very long. The first is justification. Justification is the act by which God, through Jesus, removes our sins. Jesus pays for all of our sins on the cross, and therefore they are removed, and we are declared to be righteous. That is the, that's what justified is, declared to be righteous. But then there's the second aspect, which is sanctification. And this is the process by which the Holy Spirit is conforming us into the likeness of Jesus, that he is, over time, making us more and more like him, more and more holy Uh, more and more in his image. And then third, there is glorification, which is what will happen when one day all of this culminates in a new heavens, a new earth, and we'll be given new bodies like Jesus, and we will be freed forever from the presence of sin. We will become what we were always meant to be. First John says it like this, that we will be like Jesus, for we will finally see him as he is. It's important to be able to see and catch this, that God's plan to save us includes all of these things. God's goal in saving you was so much bigger than just getting you converted and then putting you in a little box marked saved and leaving you there until you get to heaven. Jesus did not simply come so he could save you from sin's penalty while still leaving you under sin's power. No, he came to free you from All of that. He came to save you from all of that. And the God who saved you back then is saving you even now, working through his spirit to sanctify you and to make you like his son. Jesus saves us both from the penalty of sin in the past and the power of sin in the present and the presence of sin in the future. He came to deal with all of it, and he is a God who gives complete salvation, not just pieces and little bits of it. And the sanctification aspect, that middle one, is I think what Paul is addressing in Philippians 2.12. You've been saved by him in the past. He has brought you into me and he declared you right before you did anything to deserve those things. And now we are called to cooperate with Jesus, to cooperate with God in this next step of our salvation, the sanctification process. But in case we begin to feel too much responsibility or too much weight or too much pressure in that process, he goes on in the very next verse. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then verse 13, now we're finally moving on to the next verse. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purposes. Work out your own salvation. Why? Because God Is working in you to work out your own salvation. God is working in you both to desire and to do the things that he has called you to do. And there is, I admit, a little bit of a mystery here between where where God's human or where God's sovereignty kind of overlaps or where it where it ends and where where uh human responsibility begins I I don't know I don't know how to untangle that or or parse that out completely but what is clear is that working out my salvation does not mean that I am the one who makes it happen and that it all depends on me no God is the one working in me giving me new power and desire to to obey that's clear equally clear though is that I am called to take that new power and desire and to act on it. But we never just coast through the Christian life after saying a prayer or jumping in the baptistry. John Piper describes it like this. He calls it the miracle of obedience. And what, he gets in, what he's describing is this idea that none of us naturally wants to obey God. That anytime we want to obey God, that is a miracle. I'm not saying that people can't want to do good things. No, I think all of us, I think that's something that God has placed inside of all of us is some bit of a moral compass that knows right from wrong. And all of us have some desire to do the right thing, but this desire to take myself off the throne and place God on the throne where he rightfully deserves, no one does that on their own. No one ever wants to displace themselves from the throne and make someone else the ruler of their life. And so when that's happening in a person, when I want God to do that, that is a miracle. That is supernatural. That's not something I can conjure up. And what Piper says is God gives the miracle of obedience, but we act the miracle. God gives the miracle. We act the miracle. We act the miracle by working out our salvation. So next question. How do we do that? How do we work out our own salvation? What does this look like practically? What does Paul want us to do when he says, work out our own salvation? Well, he tells us in the very next verse, but I'll tell you his answer might surprise you a little bit, verse 14. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. That's it, don't grumble. Don't argue. Man, of all the places Paul could have gone, like like work out your own salvation by, by sharing the gospel with everyone you can. Work out your salvation by giving away all your money. Work out your salvation by living a completely sacrificial life. And I think Paul, is, Paul would say, yeah, there's more to it than this, but it's crazy to me that the first place he goes is do not grumble and do not complain. Does that not seem just a little mundane to you? He sounds like, Paul sounds like a parent on a family road trip, right? Hey, stop complaining back there. Stop arguing. I will turn this car around, Philippians, right? Like he's, it sounds so just like, I don't know, just so normal, so bourgeois, so whatever you want to say, just like so low. Why does Paul go here with this very ho-hum command of all the things that he could have told them to do? I'll tell you, Paul does not find this command to be mundane, anything but. Look what he says next. We'll read verse 14 again. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. According to Paul, a life free of grumbling and arguing is one of the most striking things, one of the most Jesus-like things a person can possibly do. And it makes sense, actually, because grumbling and arguing, complaining, moaning, that is, that is something that is such a part of the fabric of our world. It is one of the most natural things to do when you do not get your way, when things don't go as they intended to complain and to grumble about those things. It's the most natural thing to argue with people that oppose you or get on your nerves. And so Paul says, if you refuse to do that, if you live the way I'm calling you to, you will shine like stars. You will stand out. You will look different than everyone. And actually when you When you understand the context that Paul is writing into, it sheds a little bit more light on this thing. This is more than Paul just saying, hey, keep a positive attitude. This is is bigger than that. Because we know, actually, that that the Philippian church is facing two major problems in this moment. Uh, One of those problems is internal that they are dealing with this unity within the church. And this is hinted at all the way through the text as, as Paul makes these commands to, to serve one another and put others' interests uh, in front of your own and, and have the same mind, have the same thought process together. But then it's made explicit when we get into chapter 4. He will say this in Philippians 4, verses 2 through 3. I urge Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, and I also ask you, true partner, this unnamed person, I ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side. Paul says, I mean, there are these two women there, and, and he almost never does this. You will almost never see this in his letters where he will call out people by name in correction. To like correct them, he will call them out to praise them, but to correct them, that almost never happens. This is serious. These two women, good women, godly women, both of them are co laborers with Paul. They have labored at his side in the gospel, and somehow they have ended up at odds with one another. And it appears that sides are being taken. It is beginning to tear apart at the fabric of this church. And so Paul pleads all the way through this, uh, this letter for them to have u- unity and humility and service and love. But that's not the only problem they're facing. Externally, we also know that they're facing persecution. Because he'll say in Philippians 1 there has been granted to you to suffer on Christ's behalf. And then he says in verse 30, uh, Philippians 1.30, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. You're going through the same struggle you saw me have. What was that struggle? Acts chapter 16. This is what the church saw happen to Paul. As he preaches the gospel, he is wrongfully accused. He is arrested. He is beaten publicly and in his thrown in jail. And he goes, I know it. You're going through the same stuff I was. Life has not been easy for this young church. They have faced hardship from the very beginning, from the very outset, from the day Jesus saved them. They have been trying to faithfully follow Jesus, to follow the instruction and teaching that Paul has given. They've tried to be faithful to him. They've tried to do what they were supposed to do. And guess what that has gotten them? It's gotten them suffering, it's gotten them beaten. Some of them have lost jobs. It's made them go through hard things. Have you ever tried to be faithful and obedient to Jesus and felt like the only reward you got was hardship and difficulty? That in spite of, and maybe sometimes even because of your obedience, the only thing you were getting in return was pain and hardship, relational strain with your family members, financial uncertainty as you try to give and to and to be generous with your money or severed friendship or lost opportunities at work. Have you ever tried to take seriously Paul's commands in Philippians 2 to put everyone else's interests above your own? Only to pause and look up one day and feel like you're the only one trying to obey that command? that you're looking out for everyone else's interests, and guess what? They're also looking out for their own interests. And it feels like you're just being taken for granted, at best, taken advantage of, at worst. If you've been in a situation like that, you know how tempting it can be to let grumbling and complaining and bitterness take over. Seriously, God? I'm trying here. I'm, I'm trying. I'm, I'm doing the things you told me to do. I'm, I'm trying to follow Jesus. So where's my break going to come? Why, why is it always so hard? Why does everything seem to be crumbling around me if I'm trying to do the right thing? Seriously? For real, church? All the ways I try to serve and get involved and, and be a part of community, I feel like everyone's always holding me at arm's length. Like no one's willing to serve me like I'm trying to serve them. You know. How hard it is, how easy it is to fall into that groove. It's the natural response of all of us. And so we see that this mundane command from Paul is actually an extraordinary one. That much like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he's raising the bar. You know how it works with Jesus, right? stands up and he tells everybody, listen, I'm I'm telling you, it's not enough for you to just not murder people. I'm telling you that you need to no longer have hatred in your heart towards your brother. It's not good enough just to uh, not commit adultery or not have affairs. I'm telling you that you should not look at someone lustfully in your heart. And here Paul is saying to them, I'm telling you, you're not just supposed to serve. You're not just supposed to do the right thing, that you're supposed to do that with the attitude of Jesus. I don't know if you caught that last week. But in Philippians 2.5, the command is not uh, have the actions of Jesus, though he wants them to do that. It's have the attitude. It's have the mindset of Jesus. And this has been actually a pretty mind-blowing thought for me in recent years. I know, like I've always known, that Jesus lived a sinless life. Have you ever stopped sometimes and tease out all the implications of that, what that really means, that he lived a sinless life? That over the course of three-plus decades here walking the earth, he never had one millisecond of a bad attitude. To go from eternal glory at the right hand of his father and the joy of his father's presence and then to drop down into this into a human body and all its weakness and sweat and propensity to get sick and its aching muscles to be involved in all of this so that he could teach and heal and feed and love and serve and save people all the way to the point of exhaustion. And what does he get for that? Rejection from his family. Run out of his own hometown, Nazareth. He gets hard hearts, from the religious leaders. He gets hard hearts from his own disciples. He gets betrayed by one of his closest friends. There's a moment where Jesus stands over the city of Jerusalem and weeps for her with compassion, longing for her to experience grace, longing for her to be saved, and five days later, it returns the the favor to him by crucifying him on a cross. That's what Jesus gets for coming and serving. That's what Jesus gets for emptying himself. And does Jesus get frustrated by this? Yes. Is Jesus saddened by this? Yes. Is Jesus angered by this? Yes. He gets angry at hard hearts. He gets angry at injustice. He gets angry at the way sin is taking over people's lives, but he never, in the midst of that, never once lets it drive him towards a sinful, selfish pity party. Never once shakes his fist at his father for sending him down into this mess. Never lashes out towards people. Doesn't do that even for a second. And we know that he didn't because if he had, we'd have no hope. If he had succumbed to a sinful attitude, then he could not have been our sinless sacrifice. And he didn't. 1 Peter 2, 23, when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. What kind of man is this? What kind of savior is this? 33 years without a bad attitude to save you and I. And this is what Paul is calling us to. To that kind of mindset that refuses, no matter what is happening around me, to turn inward in self-protection mode. To the kind of mindset that doesn't just serve others, but serves them with gladness, even if they never return the favor. Even if they never recognize my service. The kind of mindset that faithfully obeys the Lord and rejoices in following the Lord, even when it costs me. That's exactly what Paul says. Look, verse 17. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So he says that the, the, the Philippians are living this life of sacrificial service to God. He kind of pictures them as an altar, an offering being made to him. And then he throws this other metaphor of he himself being poured out on to that offering. Most commentators think that Paul is talking about his own death. Philippians, even if you suffer, and even if I suffer to the point of, the de- uh, point of death, I'm going to be glad, and I'm going to rejoice with you, and you know what? You should too. Rejoice with me in your suffering. Rejoice with me even when I die. Those are strong words, a strong command to give to these people, and I don't think that what he means is that they need to have some sort of eternal optimism or rose-colored glasses or naivety or, or a stiff upper lip, any of those things. Listen, Jesus' own life shows us that it is okay to experience negative emotions. The many laments in the Psalms show us that we can feel negative emotions and that we can voice those things to the Lord, that we should bring those negative emotions to the Lord. But the call here is that even as we voice those things, that we refuse to drift towards self-pity or bitterness or towards a numb indifference to our brothers and sisters. And that is a high call. Perhaps it even feels like an unrealistic call. To rejoice in all things, even hard things? To serve with gladness even those who drive you crazy? That feels like an impossible ideal. And it leads to the question all over again, how do we do this? How do we live like this? Where do we find the strength to serve and to face hardship and to bear with difficult people and still rejoice rather than complain and still rejoice whether the mutter things under our breath here is where we find that? Back in verse 13. We work out our own salvation for it is God who works it in us, both to will and to work according to his good purposes. Yes, Yes, we are called to work out our own salvation, and yes, that means living a life and a mindset that may feel unattainable at times. And if it is up to our own power to do that, then it is absolutely unattainable. We can't do this, but the good news is that it's not dependent on our strength, though it does require our effort. And it is not dependent on our ability to grow, though it does, dep- uh, it does require us taking steps toward growth. It requires discipline and all of those things. But ultimately, it is dependent on him. And the Jesus that saved you is still saving you. He is not done with you. He didn't leave you in the baptistry. He is working in your heart, working in your lives to this very day, at this very moment, to make you into the person he designed you to be, to make you like himself. I think, by the way, that this is why Paul does this really weird turn halfway through our texts and starts talking about travel plans. I don't know if you noticed that. Here he is in the middle of this really high and lofty speech about Jesus and all that he is and what he did, and then this huge command to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and all of a sudden he kind of takes this hard turn and starts talking about, well, you know, I wanted to send Timothy to you, and I tried to, but it's just not the right timing. He's kind of useful to me, and so I decided to send Epaphroditus to you. Why, Why does he do that here? It's not weird, by the way, for Paul to explain travel plans and who he's sending when and all that. He does that in a lot of his letters. He pretty much never does that in the middle of them. Almost always does it. He saves that towards the end. But here, right smack dab in the middle of the letter, he starts talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus. You know why? I think because he's giving the Philippians more than just travel plans. I think he's giving them an example. We don't have time. To go through it all, but, but when you go home today, read that section again and notice how all the phrases that Paul uses to describe Timothy and Epaphroditus, they line up perfectly with all the phrases he's been using to command the Philippians. He says that they are those who look after other people's interests and not their own. He says they are those who care most importantly about Jesus and his interests. He says that they're the kind of people who are willing to risk their life for Jesus and his cause. What I think Paul is doing is he is showing that this kind of life that he's calling the Philippians to is possible that it is doable, that these two men are doing it. And Timothy and Epaphroditus don't live like this because they're naturally more selfless than we are. It's not because they're able to find another spiritual gear somewhere that we don't have and kick things into overdrive, no, The reason that Timothy and Epaphroditus are able to live like this is because God is working in them, both to will and to work according to his purposes. And that same God that is working in them is working in you, Philippians, Paul says. And that same God that is working in them is working in you, Sonnybrook, to make you into the kinds of people that he has called you to be. And that same God actually is working in Paul. We sometimes think of Paul as almost this like supernatural figure who does all of these things because he's got some different kind of personality or something kind of different and extra spiritual about him. But Paul chalks up his own ministry to this very thing. He'll say in 1 Corinthians 15.10 uh, that, that even though he, was, he, he works really hard, he says, I came to this whole thing, this whole apostleship thing kind of late in the game. So I work harder than all of them yet, he says. Yet it is not I, but God's grace working in me. I think that's such a perfect summary of what we're talking about. Paul works. He works hard. He works harder than anyone he knows, and yet his work is not the decisive factor in this. It is Christ. It is the grace of God. That is the decisive factor. He enables the miracle of obedience, and Paul acts the miracle. Let me give you one more verse that Paul says to sum up his own ministry and how he goes about these things. This is, this is a verse worth having communion to. So that's what we're going to do here. Galatians 2.20. It's a verse that Paul uses as a little bit of a uh, like life verse, an identity verse for who he is. In describing his own life, he says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And that life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul knows who he is. I am one who has been loved by Jesus, and he loved me enough to die for me and save me in the past. But the good news is, he still loves me enough today to live in me. And everything I do, even though I put work into it, even though I put effort into it, it is ultimately done by my faith in Jesus. It is done by me depending on him and trusting in him and praying for him and and knowing that it is not I, but Christ in me. Listen, brothers and sisters, we've been called to a high calling. But in your struggle to do the right thing, know this, you never struggle alone. And your battle with temptation to try and put old ways behind you. You never battle by yourself. You battle with the power of God behind you. You battle, battle with the Holy Spirit inside of you. You battle with the Savior who loved you enough to save you then and loves you enough to save you now and will save you all the way through to the end. He is committed to that. And so when we take communion together, we don't just celebrate something that happened in the past. We celebrate something that is happening to this day and will happen until he sees it through to completion. So, brothers and sisters, this is Christ's body given for us. Let's take and eat. Christ's blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's drink. Now let's sing to Jesus, celebrating that it is him, not us, that saves
0: us and brings us all the way through.